You're listening to a podcast edition of Closer to Truth. For more information about this series, visit our website, closertotruth.com. What's the relationship between the mental activity of our minds and the physical actions of our brains? It's called the mind-body problem. To many, it's just a perennial problem in philosophy of mind. To me, it's a penetrating probe of human reality, a life passion. Personal identity, free will, meaning of life, even life after death, all reside in the mind-body problem. The core question is this, can knowing everything about the brain explain everything about the mind? I've pursued the mind-brain problem for decades, exploring diverse points of view. Friends would be forgiven for thinking me obsessed. Recently, a chance engagement with the arts has expanded my thinking. I know art will not, cannot solve the mind-body problem, but can art provide fresh insight? Can art clarify the mind-body problem? I'm Robert Lawrence Kuhn, and Closer to Truth is my journey to find out. To address the mind-body problem, all the science is necessary, obviously, all the physics, chemistry, biology. But is all the science sufficient? After all the science shall be understood, however far in the future, Will there be remainder? Will there remain something of our experience, of our consciousness that science cannot entirely explain? How can an artistic experience or an artistic sense relate to the mind-body problem? I explore this with an analytical philosopher who is also an acclaimed novelist. Her first book of science-savvy fiction was entitled, not coincidentally, the mind-body problem, Rebecca Neuberger-Goldstein. Rebecca, when you look at the creative process and uh, sensing the pure aesthetics of what you do, and then with a bit of an out-of-body experience uh, as the philosopher and as a scientist, look at that person, uh, what do you see? I think about this a lot. I think about the question of aesthetic realism, you know, that can arise. I mean, is, is beauty something independent of, you know, of our psychology. I'm a realist when it comes to ethics, and I tend to be a realist when it comes to aesthetics as well. What, you know, what does that mean, realism you know, in aesthetics? When we make our judgments of beauty, mm -hmm. um, we're making a, objective uh, judgments. We can offer an evolutionary explanation for why certain things seem beautiful. Scenes that involve water seem very, very beautiful to us, and we can explain the psychology that evolved on the hunter-gatherer, right, in the Pleistocene era. We were all looking for water, and so that was very desirable, and so it seems beautiful to us. And so give a very naturalist, evolutionary explanation sort of for the... Sort of a just-so kind of story. I mean, uh, it's, uh, our psychology is very much a result of natural selection, so that we can try to work back and get a, a, a naturalist explanation for these things. But... 
You know, for certain aspects of beauty, I wonder if the reason that we find them so beautiful is because they're beautiful. Um, yeah. And I find, that, I find that very, very strongly. Interestingly, not so much in art, where the naturalist explanations offer themselves to me, um, but in mathematics, right? I am a right. sucker right. for mathematical beauty. We use that sense of aesthetic beauty, of the aesthetic reality of that beauty to guide us in our exploration of reality. That that itself, um, you know, seems to point to a sort of objectivity of the of the beauty itself. Just for about the, from the naturalist point of view, the evolution of our brain it would make beauty or aesthetics a very much a relativistic kind exactly. of thing, exactly. contingent upon the accidents of evolution, both uh, in the evolution of, of the human species and particularly of our brain. Uh, but yes. then when you look at mathematics, that is so independent. I mean, E because MC squared was true even if there weren't any evolution or people. Yeah, and that the way we got to it was being guided by our sense of beauty. You know, when, when, when Darwin says at the, at the end of The Origin of Species that, you know, there is a grandeur in this view of things. And it's that same as that uh, Nabokov, the great uh, novelist, talks about the hairs at the back of your neck rising in the presence of beauty. And he's talking, of course, about literary beauty or, you know, artistic beauty, but it's the same thing with explanatory beauty. The reaction is the same, but, that, but that's my question. Is yeah. it the same? Is, yeah. is the aesthetics of science and mathematics yeah. and that elegance, but when we use that term in art and in literature is yes. then that more culturally and, and uh, or, or species dependent? Species dependent. I'm completely satisfied with the naturalist explanations when they're applied to art, but less so when they're applied to these theoretical notions that we use in order to even arrive at the right, right, naturalist right. explanations right. of art. If we didn't have this independent notion of theoretical mm -hmm. beauty, we would have never have gotten to the naturalist explanations in the first place. I believe in the objective beauty of these sorts of uh, theoretical aspects of the world. According to Rebecca, beauty is a word with multiple meanings. There's objective beauty, which is independent of human perception, and relative beauty, which is dependent on human evolution and culture. I've questions, but here's the key point. For evolution to select relative beauty for human fitness and survival, how closely must it track objective beauty in the real world? And then, given our human sense of relative beauty, how does it relate to the mind-body problem? In other words, what is it about our mind-body, our mind-brain, that can perceive and utilize relative beauty. I hear of a multi-year, multi-discipline program of the Templeton Religion Trust, TRT. Described at first as aesthetic cognitivism, now called art-seeking understanding. I speak with the originator of the program, TRT Vice President and Philosopher of Religion, Christopher Stewart. Chris, can the arts make a contribution? Does it deserve a seat at the table for the mind-body problem? Well, certainly in the sense that the arts, uh, you know, fundamentally involve, uh, in the first instance, perception, right? You start there, mm -hmm. right? That there's a, a type of perceptual experience that is special 
in a way that you begin to characterize it as aesthetic experience. So the question is, what can engagement with the arts maybe tell us about how perception works or maybe reveal mm. inadequacies in the way we think about it because we're focusing on perception, you know, in the context of simple problems like, you know, navigating a space, you know. But to get to something really complex like aesthetic experience where you have multiple sense modalities mm -hmm. working together, it could change your understanding about how the mind works. How does the mind take a perceptual experience that is very complex and then how does that become something that signify something else. So I see the problem really is, it really bifurcates into two parts. The first part is can the arts enrich what we think is the mental, the, yeah. the mind. Yeah. The second part is, is the harder part in a sense, and that says can the arts then go to the next stage and say the fundamental mm. question, is, there, is it anything beyond the, bra the physical brain yeah. in, in our heads? I mean, yeah. nobody can prove an answer to that, I don't think. But can the arts give any uh, a greater feeling to, yeah. to that question? So I think maybe in the sense that it shows the limitation, it can show up the limitations of a particular approach to the mind or the mind-body problem. Um, so that, well, does it, does it account for something as significant as what whatever it is that's happening once we come to a better understand it, standing of it in the context yeah. of aesthetic experience. Uh, my, my sense is that the arts maybe enlarges the possibility yeah. that there is something beyond it's, uh, it's, it's It's hard to escape the idea that there's something about you that can't be seen, felt, tasted, touched. <laughs> you know, there's something more. And the arts can certainly contribute to your sense that there, there is something more that it means to be human. Something more? Something beyond the hardcore physicality of our brains? Something the arts can spotlight even by only its shadow? Should art command a seat at the high table of the mind-body problem? Or are we stressing art beyond its capacity? How could art play such a revelatory role? I ask a thought leader of TRT's Art Seeking Understanding program, philosopher of art and religion, Gordon Graham. The traditional mind-body problem arises out of a certain sort of dualism. And that dualism uh, has the mind standing over and against reality. And so the question arises to whether the mind uh, has access to the reality uh, that is not mind. Now, one thing about the arts is that at the heart of it is the faculty of imagination. So if I imagine something, then the mind's apprehension of that which is imagined cannot be in terms of correspondence. There is no external reality beyond that which I imagine. So already we have the idea of an exercise of a faculty of mind uh, that doesn't fall or doesn't quite fall into this dualistic pattern. So that's where the first little glimmer of alternative thinking arises. Now then if you think, well, uh, the content of imagination, what is it? Well, of course, the content of imagination is usually objects and experiences that we see in the world about us. So it's not that the content of imagination is something completely different. It is the same, if I put it this way, the same sort of stuff. Mm -hmm. 
So now we have this uh, interesting idea that here's a faculty of mind, it grasps content, it makes sense of content, it organizes content, which content is of experience, but where still there is no duality or correspondence. And so that's where I think the first insight comes into uh, the mind-body problem from the side of uh, the aesthetic. My neurophysiologist colleagues would say that, yeah, that all makes sense, but it's all encoded in neuronal uh, discharges and synaptic chemicals and brain circuits, and we know a little bit now, but ultimately we'll be able to uh, uh, understand 100% of how it works and be able to predict entirely. Well, the question is predict what? Because the thing is that all these notions, uh, the epistemological notions, are essentially normative. So uh, that you could predict what somebody will believe, or even that you could predict what they will imagine, I'll just accept that. I doubt it myself. But that what they believe is true, that what they imagine is worth imagining, uh, that they have gained insight uh, and understanding, these are, can't be read off. Uh, from the things that the knowledge of the apparatus would protect. The, the claim is that you, you can do that. It might take you another thousand years to explain, but eventually you will. The explanations that might be on offer in 10,000 years, uh, those explanations might be genuine explanations, but they're incidental, coincidental, I would say, to the understanding that we have that enables us to think morally and to think aesthetically. Gordon has the crux of the challenge. Is there anything about the mind that can never, not even in 10,000 years, not even in principle, be explained by the brain? Just suppose there is something immaterial about the mind. Could the arts be an instrument tuned to find it? Personally, I'd give brain science first rights and enough time. But if, in the fullness of time, brain science still comes up short, I wouldn't dispute retrospectively that the arts had provided a clue. To explore what such an art-religion nexus might mean, I continue the search with an Eastern Orthodox philosopher of religion, who is also a painter, Nathan Jacobs. I certainly think that the arts may well be able to help us understand these, the facets of what we mean when we say mind. Certainly when you're talking about elements of spontaneity, right, and freedom, which are clearly uh, an important part of the philosophy of mind discussion, you run into a specific type of uh, spontaneity, creativity, imagination uh, within the arts that I think is rather intriguing. And so I think whenever you're, you're dealing in those sorts of wellsprings, right, that's, they seem to have this ontological depth to them that seem to have an underlying freedom and almost mystery to the way they percolate and move into, move into uh, action. Uh, I think that immediately opens up doors of uh, a deeper sense of what on earth we mean by mind and what on earth it means to have a mind. Uh, continuing from that, it, it would seem that a, the creativity and the spontaneity and the, and the surprise that may come out of the arts would at least give you a suggestion that mind is not a deterministic 
thing as much as you might have thought if you didn't have that. Uh, Kant seems to be, for example, pretty insistent that we, you know, we need freedom in order for, you know, the way we think about the world to make sense, right? Our moral intuitions, for example. And if I need to be a free entity in order for this to make sense, you know, we want to avoid not, we want to avoid reductionistic views of mind and so on. And I think there's something that, that may well be similar when you're talking about the type of spontaneity that comes into play when you're talking about creativity itself. It seems like if there, if there is going to be a vehicle in the world that mm -hmm. will untether mm -hmm. the mind to a materialistic, uh, mm -hmm. uh, physicalistic brain 100%, mm -hmm. then the arts could be that vehicle yeah. or and, a part of the vehicle. You know, there, there may be certain uh, reductionistic explanations you can offer for what we would call a free choice, so that not all free choices seem to have the same level of freedom. But uh, artistry, uh, that type of spontaneity, seems to always be this struggle that is almost emerging ex nihilo, right? And, and that's where I think it does offer some tremendous p potential to explore that. Nathan's argument from the arts to a mind that is not 100% material is founded on freedom. Freedom to be spontaneous, creative, imaginative. A freedom that would seem impossible, he says, with a purely physical brain. Can be critiqued, it isn't hard. Illusion is one way. Exotic physics, information theory, quantum mechanics is another. It is time at last for neuroscience, because most neuroscientists need none of those. I meet the director of the Penn Center for Neuroaesthetics, neurologist Anjan Chatterjee. This notion that there is a distinction between the mind and the brain, uh, one might think of those as just different levels of description. Uh, and that, uh, to use a term that philosophers often use, that one supervenes on the other, mm. that there is a way in which whatever we have to say about the mind can't contradict what we know about the brain. Uh, and so there's a mutual constraint going on there. But it might be the case that if you know everything about the brain, you will not have learned everything about the mind. There is a, a notion that is somewhat popular in neuroscience now of the way in which experiences are embodied, right? That there is this notion that it's not just a computer, but that the way our mind is organized is informed by the physical structure of our body. And with respect to aesthetics, we've been interested in the distinction of Pollock's and Mondrian's and how people respond to them. And Pollock's are sometimes referred to as action paintings. There are splatters, they're very dynamic. There's a kind of structure to them, but it's not obvious to the uninitiated where that structure is coming from. Mondrian's tend to be vertical and horizontal lines. They're very precise. They use primary colors in a way that is very ordered. We ask the question, is it the case that the experience of Pollock's is embodied in our motor systems, right? And so how one might ask that question, uh, as a neurologist in our toolkit is looking at individuals with various kinds of neurologic disease. So right now we're looking at people with Parkinson's disease and Parkinson's disease, as you know, affects our motor systems that people tend to be slow. Uh, to ask the question, do people with Parkinson's disease experience these paintings differently, oh, that's right? That's and good. that's a way of trying like to, like trying that. to 
compress this distinction between the mind and the body mm -hmm. to say that here's an aesthetic experience which we think is a mind experience, but is cashed out in physical properties of our body and in the relationship of how our brain organizes and controls these physical aspects of our body. Could neuroaesthetics explaining experiences of art in terms of functions of brains help make the scientific case that everything about the mind is produced entirely by the brain? To put the big question bluntly, can art be explained by brain alone? Because if it can, the mind-body problem seems solved. The body, the brain, the winner. I just happen to hope this is wrong. So I admit it, I want a non-reductionist to justify my hope, and I'd know just whom. A British neurologist, philosopher, humanist, and atheist, he's one of my heroes, Raymond Tallis. Ray coined the term neuromania. There are many reasons for disagreeing with the notion that neuroscience can cast much light on our aesthetic sense. I think most importantly, we have to recognize that the responsiveness of the brain is something that goes back a long way. It's very ancient, whereas our experience of art is very culturally sensitive. What we count as art and what we're aware of and what gives us pleasure is very much a matter of the culture in which we live. Secondly, evolutionary explanations of the value of art don't seem to address the real reasons why human beings cherish art. There's no evolutionary imperative in our search for the kinds of meanings and satisfactions that art give us. My own feeling is that art is a way of repairing the wound in the present tense. The sense that we're never quite there, that somehow our own experience, our life eludes us. And it, art is a way of making things stand still. So a story has the beginning and the end all in the same place, all connected. A piece of music is both a continuous journey and permanent arrival. It's all of those things. And that is, a, as it were, a correction to the elusiveness of experience. Now, that kind of thing isn't the sort of thing that exercises chimpanzees. As far as I can tell, they're not concerned about that. Moreover, art is about consolation for the kind of things that, again, don't exercise animals and wouldn't seem to have any biological attraction, like our fear of death and so on. But there's actually a much greater concern, which is that if you approach art through neuroscience, the results are absolutely abysmal, impoverishing. A friend of mine was very interested in using neuroscience to uh, try to understand our appreciation of literature. He focused on something called functional shift, which is used a lot by Shakespeare, using a verb as a noun. And he has the example in Carolinas mm. saying, he godded me, which I the noun as a verb. And he found that when you exposed subjects to this kind of stimulus, they had a particular EEG wave which is associated with surprise. He was rather disappointed when I told him you'd have exactly that same wave if you accidentally trod in some dog dirt on the pavement. <laughs> in other words, there's nothing in neuroscience that can help to pick up something as utterly distinctive about the aesthetic experience, particularly because your experiences and mine are deeply related to our life. I mean, what, say, the Bach cello suites mean to me 
is associated with the fact that we're also a present I got on my 21st birthday. But all of that is encoded within your brain, your emotions, your feelings, uh, it, it, it's, it's all there. You have to get technologies that will be vastly superior, qualitatively different over millennia to be able to get down to the, to the fine-grained analysis, but when you can, it, you should be able to explain why the box cello suite means more to you than it would to me. Let's go with your idea. Let's supposing neuroscience advanced by leaps and bounds, so much so that, say, in 30 years' time, you could have a printout of all the neural activity in my brain when I'm listening to Bach cello suites. What form would that take? Effectively, millions and millions of ones and zeros. No, How much I'm light would that cast on the aesthetic experience? No. The fact remains is you can see the poverty of neurological explanations of human behavior, particularly highlighted when you look at some of the more highfalutin activities, such as the enjoyment of art. That art exists in all its variegated splendor is a fact of the world I think relevant to the mind-body problem. Art on its own cannot defeat physicalism, and it shouldn't even try. Rather, art highlights issues and conflicts in consciousness. Though these questions are not new, art does cut them sharper. Would it matter if beauty were objective in the world or only relative to human psychology? Could art suggest something beyond the physical? Suppose imagination had no correspondence in the actual world. Freedom, spontaneity, creativity, are they more likely with an immaterial mind? Does mind supervene on the brain? Are mental states pure consequences of brain activity? Neuroscience can never explain aesthetic experience? So where am I on the mind-body problem? Call me aggressively agnostic, passionately agnostic, arguing with all sides. I guess there's a piece missing getting closer to truth. To watch complete conversations with over 100 of the world's leading thinkers on cosmos, consciousness, and meaning, visit our website, closertotruth.com.